Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, April 7th through Tuesday, April 12th feature Ricardo Muti and the orchestra joined by pianist Leif Ovi Antonas. The program includes Richard Strauss's Dreaming by the Fireside from Intermezzo with Leif Ovi Antonas' Piano Concerto by Benjamin Britten and after intermission, Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 4. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Benjamin Britten's Piano Concerto, Opus 13, a work lasting about 34 minutes. When his friends W. H. Auden and Christopher Isherwood left England for the United States early in 1939, Benjamin Britten decided to follow, hoping to find a climate more accepting of his left-wing politics and pacifist stance, his artistic beliefs, and his homosexuality. Britain was obviously at a crossroads in his life and in his career. He later called himself a discouraged young composer, muddled, fed up, and looking for work, longing to be used. And he believed that the change of scene would do him good. Already a rising star in his native England, Britain had long been intrigued by the land of Aaron Copland, whose music he loved, and Carl Sandburg, whose folk song collection, the American Songbook, he could scarcely put down. In April 1939, he set off for North America with Peter Paris, the tenor who would become his great interpreter and lifelong companion. They stopped first in Montreal and from there crossed over to the United States, staying in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 10 days and then settling in New York City. Over the next two and a half years, Britain wrote little music, but he came of age as a composer nevertheless. Although the United States wasn't quite what he expected, he hated the noise and dirt of New York, froze in Chicago, contracting a vile cold and flu, and found Hollywood really horrible, it offered Britain a neutral setting in which to address both personal and artistic issues. And during his first summer in America, when he and Paris rented a house in Woodstock, New York, near Aaron Copland's place, Britton and Copland became close friends, comparing their works in progress, playing tennis, Britton always won, Copland recalled, and going out to dinner or the movies. I thought of him as the voice of England in the contemporary musical scene, Copland said. In fact, when Britain returned to England in March 1942, he took with him a book of poems by George Crabbe that he had bought in a Los Angeles bookstore, and he was already plotting the opera Peter Grimes, based on Crabbe's The Burrow, that would soon make him the most celebrated composer in England since Henry Purcell. It was in Chicago, on January 15, 1940, that Britain made his U.S. debut as a performer, introducing his piano concerto to the American public. Though Mr. Britain has been living in New York since shortly before the declaration of the European War, he has not appeared publicly there, except for a radio broadcast, the Chicago Tribune reported. Britain was little more than an unknown name in this country at the time, and the Tribune writer admitted that he was no better equipped to judge Britain's music than the rest of the Chicago public. I have never heard a single one of his major works. It would be another six years before the Chicago Symphony would add Britain's name to its repertoire list, playing two of the C interludes from Peter Grimes. Britain's Piano Concerto was introduced in the Blackstone Theater in the Chicago Loop with the Illinois Symphony Orchestra conducted by Albert Goldberg. The house was full 
Several boxes were taken by the British Consul General and his guest, and Britain, tall, slim, and 26 in the words of the Tribune critic, received an ovation at the end of his performance. The audience liked the concerto's quaint, out-of-focus melodies, its pungent but never extravagant harmonic touches, its odd, percussive rhythms, and the free, almost improvisatory character of the whole, the Tribune concluded. Audiences and critics have grown immeasurably in their understanding of Britain's music over the next eight decades as they have come to know the major scores, such as Peter Grimes, which premiered in 1945, The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra a year after that, and The War Requiem in 1961. Britain began his concerto in early 1938, anticipating playing the piano solo at the premiere at the year's BBC proms in Queen's Hall under Sir Henry Wood. It dashes along full speed, he wrote in his diary in early February of 1938, but by March he was stuck in the second movement, which is poor stuff. In April, he told the BBC he was elated with his progress, although that same month he moved into the Mill House in Snape, a village just off the road to Alberg, a town later identified throughout the music world with his music festival there, and had little time to compose. The full score was finished and the parts copied just in time for the first rehearsal on August 5th. Like Mozart, Beethoven, and Brahms, Britton wrote his piano concerto to play himself, although unlike them, he never made a career of performing, was a reluctant stage presence, and grew increasingly uncomfortable appearing in public in later years. Peter Paris, whom he met in 1937, quickly realized that Britton was a natural pianist, sensing an extraordinary connection between his brain, his heart, and the tips of his fingers. You could watch Ben holding his hands over the piano preparatory to playing a slow movement, a soft, soft chord, and you could see his fingers alert, alive, really, sometimes even quivering with the intensity of what was going to occur. While he was at work on the score for the concerto, Britton told his friend, the soprano, Sophie Weiss, that he felt it was always a bit of an effort to play the piano. I so seldom do it. But after the first rehearsal, he wrote to Ralph Hawkes, his publisher, that the piano part wasn't as impossible to play as I feared, and with a little practice this week, ought to be okay. The concerto is Britain's most substantial score for his instrument. In his program note for the premiere, he said the work was conceived with the idea of exploiting various important characteristics of the pianoforte, such as its enormous compass, its percussive quality, and its suitability for figuration, so that it is not by any means a symphony with pianoforte, but rather a bravura concerto with orchestral accompaniment. The solo part is indeed challenging and virtuosic, full of acrobatic flourishes, runs, and leaps, one of which sent Britain's shirt stud flying into the air at the premiere. The piece had been advertised as a work of a popular nature, a marketer's way of capturing its hard-to-define style, intermingling traditional forms with the music of the current day, and straddling the seriousness of a piano concerto and the flair of a divertimento. In the Radio Times, the critic Alan Frank said that the composer dislikes this business of dividing music up into light and serious compartments. At the premiere, the concerto was well-received, but the critics were not equally convinced by all four of Britain's movements, and several of his closest friends did not know what to think 
Ethel and Frank Bridge, the composer whose theme Britain had recently taken as the subject of a fine set of variations, sat with shut faces when they listened to the recording of the broadcast he brought them. In 1945, at the time he was finishing Peter Grimes, Britain revised the concerto, making minor changes to three of the movements and replacing the third movement completely. Britain described the concerto as simple and direct in form. The dazzling, brilliant opening toccata, the largest of the four movements, begins at full speed and continues at a furious pace. It is stilled, finally, by a grand cadenza that is not only wildly virtuosic, but evocative, sometimes eerily quiet and richly atmospheric. The second movement is a haunting waltz, darkened by undercurrents of irony and foreboding. At the premiere, the prominent critic Constant Lambert approvingly called it a fascinating psychological study. But Lambert was not convinced by the third movement, recitative and aria, and this is the movement Britain later scrapped and replaced in 1945 by a new impromptu, a set of variations over a Passacaglia bass. There was another grand Passacaglia in Peter Grimes. Britain took his theme for this movement from the incidental music he wrote in 1937 for a radio drama on the subject of King Arthur, shortly before he began the concerto. But it was the original recitative and aria that Britain played in Chicago in 1940, apparently for the last time. The impromptu leads directly into the final march, which recalls the furious pace and some of the thematic material of the opening toccata, and is capped by an extraordinary passage for piano accompanied only by bass drum and cymbals. Britain never attempted another full-scale concerto for the piano, even though his score was initially entitled Concerto No. 1. In 1940, just months after Britain's Chicago visit, he wrote diversions for Paul Wittgenstein, the pianist who lost his right arm in World War I and commissioned many composers, including Prokofiev and Ravel, to compose works for him to play. This sole piano concerto was neglected for many years. In 1967, Svialoslav Richter began to play the piece magnificently, according to Britain, who was delighted that Richter had clearly resurrected the old work. The following year, Richter played the concerto in Florence with Riccardo Muti, then at the very beginning of his career. A footnote. A long-lost recording of the 1938 premiere of the original version of the score with the third movement, recitative, and aria made by Leo Kersley, a friend of Britain's, surfaced in 2015 and is now in the collection of the British Library. Program notes by Philip Husher on Benjamin Britten's Piano Concerto. And now on to Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 4, a work lasting about 29 minutes. After the surprising success of his first symphony composed and premiered within the span of just two months, early in 1841, Schumann wasted no time in pursuing his newfound enthusiasm, promising to make 1841 a year devoted to orchestral music, just as 1840 had been his year of song. A Sinfonietta, later published as the Overture, Scherzo, and Finale, and a Fantasy for Piano and Orchestra, eventually serving as the first movement of the Piano Concerto, were sketched almost immediately, followed in May by this D minor symphony. 
Sometimes I hear D minor strains resounding wildly from the distance, Clara wrote in her diary that month of her husband's exciting progress. The new symphony occupied Schumann throughout the summer, and it was ready to be introduced in early December, rounding out the most ambitious year of Schumann's career, the one in which he staked out new territory and asserted himself as a member of the great symphonic tradition of Beethoven and Schubert. But for Schumann, the excitement with which 1841 began was spoiled by the lukewarm reception given the D minor symphony on December 6th in Leipzig. He quickly gave up on a new symphony in C minor that was already in progress, put the D minor symphony back on the shelf, and began the next year looking in a different direction. By June, he had a new preoccupation, and 1843 became a year of chamber music. It was another two years before he returned to orchestral music, and his remaining two symphonies were published as his second and third, as if to deny the existence of the failed one in D minor. Finally, in 1851, Schumann returned to the D minor symphony a full decade after its Leipzig premiere, revised its orchestration, reworked two significant transition passages, and introduced it for a second time, now as his fourth symphony. This time, it was a success. This is the version that is regularly performed today, although Brahms, who found it overdressed, always preferred the simpler, less heavily orchestrated original. Of all the pieces Schumann undertook in 1841, the D minor symphony is the most radical, which may explain why the public didn't take to it immediately. It isn't the quantity of Schumann's orchestral writing that distinguishes his output in 1841, even though he boasted in July that the main thing is production itself, but his courageous insistence on exploring this new medium from various angles. In just nine months, he composed a large-scale symphony in the grand Beethoven tradition, a smaller sinfonietta, a concerto-like fantasy for piano and orchestra, and finally, in this D minor work, a symphony that moves beyond the classical model, a serious rethinking of the genre. When Schumann set out to revise the score ten years later, he couldn't even decide whether to call it a symphony or a fantasy, and the title page bears the compromise symphonic fantasy that he settled on until the piece was published simply as his fourth symphony. Years later, he had warned that nothing arouses disagreement and opposition so quickly as a new form bearing an old name. The idea of writing a different kind of symphony was clearly on Schumann's mind when he made his first sketches in 1841. Only days after he began, Clara's diary mentions a new symphony which will consist of one movement yet contain an adagio and finale. I have heard none of it, but I see Robert's enthusiasm, she noted. Schumann had long admired the continuous and multi-chaptered structure of Schubert's Wanderer fantasy for piano, and he was impressed with the way Mendelssohn's Lobgesang symphony linked its movements with transitional passages. But Schumann's D minor symphony is the first important orchestral work to incorporate these ideas, not only connecting its movements, but also unifying the whole with recurring themes. Schumann's symphony is a landmark both in structural cohesion and in thematic transformation. Although Schumann had praised the way Berlioz's persistent tormenting idée fixe runs throughout the Symphonie Fantastique, he accomplishes something more impressive 
and subtle in his D minor symphony. He begins with a pensive, slowly unfolding theme that will develop and change, chameleon-like, depending on its surroundings. It first blossoms into the lively melody that dominates the first movement. A related major key version is the second theme, and in the development section it grows into a march. The process is one of evolution, organic and natural. Instead of Berlioz's game of a single theme in various disguises, Schumann weaves a drama of transformation so complete that we can't distinguish between old and new. At the moment when sonata form demands something reassuringly familiar, the return of the first theme, Schumann confounds us with a tender, radiant theme that is in fact new. It fits nicely with the main theme, however, and in the original version, Schumann played them together in counterpoint as if to prove how tightly unified the score is. The entire movement continually admits fresh air into a tradition-bound form. The two inner movements are character pieces. The first is a lovely romance, an old-fashioned serenade, really, and in the original version it was accompanied by a guitar 60-some years before Mahler put a guitar in his Seventh Symphony. The symphony's somber opening makes an appearance decorated by a solo violin. Next comes a rather stern scherzo. The theme is a relative of the opening material turned upside down with a charming, relaxed trio. The transition to the last movement grows imperceptibly out of the scherzo, reinventing the symphony's opening in the process. Schumann's finale takes up the march theme from the first movement and makes it the subject of an exuberant victory music. With the coda, which bumps up the tempo twice, Schumann's most troubled symphony achieves an unequivocal happy ending. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 4. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thank you.